I'm Ray Rogers. And I'm Brad Kepler. You're listening to Fix This, a podcast exploring tech ideas and solutions to some of today's largest challenges. We're continuing the 2021 Mission Critical Cloud series, where we bring you conversations with AWS leaders and customers as we gear up for the AWS Public Sector Summit online on April 15th to the 16th, which you can register for at no cost at aws.amazon.com slash fix dash this dash podcast. In a time when physical well-being is more critical than ever, the public sector is evolving to find new ways to serve on their missions. Things like meeting citizen needs while keeping employees safe or keeping students on track while learning in a virtual format and powering research related to COVID-19. Here's Ray with Jeff Kratz, Director of the Worldwide Public Sector Business across Latin America, the Caribbean, and Canada at Amazon Web Services. 2020, of course, was a year of rapid change for everyone, but governments in particular had to think differently to meet the needs of their citizens. What are some of the changes and resulting solutions that stand out to you? I'd say over the past year, I've witnessed amazing innovation. And really what we've seen accelerate is government acting like a startup, accelerating their country's digital transformation. Now, this has resulted in improved citizen services from countries really of all economic means, size, maturity, and more. Practically, we now have students taking classes at home, like in the city of Sao Paulo, where 170,000 teachers instruct roughly 5 million students a day. And while we all agree having students on the playground and in the classes is much more preferred, cloud services now are extending the reach of education into the rural communities. In countries like Colombia, we've seen the Duque administration harness the power of artificial intelligence, not only to track the outbreak of COVID-19, but to ensure that hospital and care facilities have the PPE equipment to serve patients. And so throughout the region, we've seen government act more rapidly, and now they're coming and continuing that with greater expectations. Yeah, so you just mentioned governments are beginning to act more like startups, and you just went country by country, all of these changes that are quickly happening. What do you think other countries can learn from this? Are there any common themes that arise for you? One is that we're seeing governments proactively share their best practices across borders. You know, so many governments don't really compete with each other. And from that perspective, we've seen a global community of CIOs start to share their experiences in making the migration from old antiquated on-premise solutions to now the benefits of cloud computing. The second part is that we've seen a variety of different elected and appointed officials really start to learn cloud computing, diving in deep. And so we've been hosting government education courses, of course, virtually throughout the region, teaching the benefits of cloud, how to think about trading CapEx and OpEx models. What about data sovereignty issues? While also proactively recognizing that many of the statutes that are developed were developed way before cloud. And so we're also seeing statutes continue to modernize that then reflect and protect citizens moving forward with the best of technology out there. On the individual level, for many, work turned fully remote for the first time. How is the workforce continuing to evolve in the region? We've seen a couple of things fundamentally change. One, in the education space, where now more and more students are taking their classes from home. And as I mentioned in in Sao Paulo, 5 million students every day now are taking their courses from home. 
And then that's changed not only how the students absorb the information and learn, but also how teachers teach. In other countries, say, for instance, in Chile, we were able to spin up very quickly a variety of Amazon workspaces solutions so that government workers could work from home when they're used to going to an actual physical building. Or in other countries, like Canada and more, spinning up call centers, where now since the government workers are working from home, they don't have access from the offices where they had all the big PBX systems and more. Up in Canada, switching gears a bit, we have the University of British Columbia Community Health and Wellbeing Cloud Innovation Center, or what we know as KICS. In many ways, KICS have that startup feel that we were just talking about. There's this cross-organization collaboration, there's public and private working together, iterative problem solving. Tell me about the importance of the KIC to the region, and do you have any favorite solutions? We've just celebrating just a little over a year since we announced the kick with the University of British Columbia, an amazing partner that is continuing to modernize, teach their students, as well as provide the opportunities for, as you mentioned, local community engagements. And we've got a variety of different projects underway. The majority of them that we have been involved with involve artificial intelligence. And given COVID, that was a really big area that we jumped forward and is in a couple of different areas. One was a project that we worked with students and faculty alike using artificial intelligence to help advance physicians making an assessment based on the x-rays as well as test results that were coming back. And that's been able to help doctors more rapidly provide more accurate assessments. And another one, we worked really closely splicing and looking at all the genome data, reanalyzing well over 5.7 million gigabytes, so it's a lot of data, from uh, public RNA sequencing data. And that effort has been able to help provide additional insights and recommendations for the local community. And looking ahead, how do you see the region continuing to evolve with the cloud, not just from all of the changes that have occurred in 2020, but in 2021, what do you hope to see? I think what we will continue to see is an acceleration because governments now acting like startups are continuing to push and they're pushing for innovation, best practice sharing, and to be more responsive for their citizens. So from that side, we are seeing them continuing to advance defining what essential infrastructure looks like, including networking and telecommunications. We're seeing them continue to look at how they reduce and modernize international trade policies so that investment can continue to flow uninterrupted while also protecting their local economies. In education, boy, we've seen a lot of real big jumps forward, especially in technical knowledge, leveraging programs like AWS Educate, which enables a student in the middle of the night to learn all about cloud computing and security and more. In healthcare, very fast modernization, and especially on the supply chain element making sure that the hospitals have the PPE and other resources that are needed. And then last but absolutely not least, the nonprofits continue to flourish throughout the region, small to large, leveraging cloud computing so that they can reach out to their populace and continue their efforts. So we see the momentum continuing to accelerate and an amazing amount of innovation throughout the region.
In the Amazon rainforest, there are isolated tribes. In Colombia, local communities have a vested interest in understanding where they live. This knowledge helps local communities and lawmakers work together to protect the forest and the people who call it home, ultimately to preserve these tribes' way of life. To understand where the tribes are, satellite imagery can help map their locations in a non-invasive way. To learn more about the role the cloud plays in helping to keep isolated people safe, especially during the pandemic, we chatted with Brian Hetler, a senior manager of mapping and program support for the Amazon conservation team. And that's Amazon is in the rainforest, not Amazon the company. And Matt Hollis, technical lead of sustainable development practice for Maxar Technologies. Community leaders on the ground in Colombia reached out to ACT to map the locations of indigenous isolated tribes in the Amazon rainforest. Why is mapping these locations so important? And when did they first reach out to you about this? So several years ago, uh, local indigenous communities in Colombia reached out to ACT asking for help to map the presence of isolated indigenous groups, sometimes referred to as uncontacted tribes. And these are groups of indigenous peoples that have chosen to live independently in the forest with little to no interaction with the outside world. And often these groups have remained in isolation for more than 100 years after facing horrific violence and enslavement during the rubber boom in the early 1900s. Now, local indigenous communities have long known of isolated peoples in the Amazon, but it was often a challenge to convince the outside world and national governments that these isolated groups truly existed so that protection strategies could be implemented. And this need to prove the existence of isolated groups became increasingly urgent in the early 2000s as more and more threats like illegal gold mining began to encroach on isolated groups across the region, resulting in deadly contact events between illegal actors and isolated peoples. Isolated groups are some of the most vulnerable populations on Earth with limited immunological defenses against common respiratory illnesses, where even the slightest interactions with the outside world can spread pathogens that may decimate entire villages. Did the Colombian government and other communities know exactly where these isolated tribes lived, or was that the entire purpose of starting, to really understand how many are there, where are they, how can we better protect them? What was the purpose of it? So the stories about isolated groups had existed almost in a, in a mythical state among these communities, where it's, these are stories that have been passed down for generations, where where people had seen you know, sporadic sightings of isolated peoples on the periphery of their territories. But there had never been a kind of a systematized analysis to determine how many groups there are in Colombia or in the region in general. And um, many of these, these areas were lacking protective designations. So many of the, the countries in South America have legislation on the books saying that if isolated groups are identified with evidence, that protective designations must be implemented. So that was one of our goals to, to try to prove that they exist so that it can be better protected, which is not only a, an urgently critical human rights issue, but it's also a critical environmental issue as these groups inhabit some of the best preserved tracts of Amazonian forests, home to huge amounts of biodiversity and carbon storage. In addition to using satellite imagery to look for isolated indigenous groups, it's also been a key mapping tool for participatory mapping processes with local communities. And working with indigenous groups in the Amazon, we've been printing out large maps with satellite imagery on which each member of the community draws aspects of the landscape that are relevant to them. So each demographic for the community has a different perspective. We have been able to develop cultural maps and also management plan maps of communities neighboring isolated indigenous groups, which has led to community land use agreements, the establishment of strict protection areas, 
and overall reinforcement of protection for isolated Indigenous peoples' territories. And honestly, Brian, I mean, that I think drives home the exact reason behind this partnership, right? So the satellite imagery, that can be one piece of the puzzle, but without a purpose partner like ACT, who's hyper-focused, you know, on the same purpose as Maxar, which is for a better world, then, you know, we're not going to be making the true changes that, that need to be seen on the ground. So participatory mapping, local involvement is really at the core of any sort of true change that we're going to see as it relates to, you know, protecting areas and, and, and protecting peoples. Previous to working with Maxar and tapping into all of the satellite imagery and data, how was the community able to help protect them? A plane would fly over the approximate area where communities had indicated that these isolated tribes reside. And then the plane would look for these houses. And if they found one, the plane would then circle around the house several times while the passengers took photographs. And these photographs often show isolated indigenous peoples in a high state of alarm where they're pointing their bows and arrows at the passing plane. Moreover, monitoring and vigilance strategies to identify threats in these areas often included field expeditions into the territories of isolated peoples, which increased the risk of potentially deadly contact events. So in general, there is people doing this research looking to confirm the presence of isolated groups, all with good intentions, but there's potential for for negative, unwanted consequences. And with this in mind, we sought to develop non-invasive monitoring strategies using remote technologies. And this is where satellites really come into the story. Matt, help fill us in. What is the Secure Watch platform that Maxar offers? And how is the organization collaborating with ACT and providing the tools they need to do this work in a non-invasive way? So SecureWatch is our cloud-based, you know, image streaming and analytics platform that essentially hosts, you know, 110 petabytes of historical archive data that we've captured dating back to 1999. So it's an easy-to-use platform that really allows users to get a downlink, you know, of, of our most recent data that they can use for their day-to-day activities. They can also pull data that's from our historical archive that allows people to, of course, see change over time. And then another major benefit, especially within the context of ACT, is the ability to disseminate that imagery and the subsequent information derived from the imagery across teams in a really efficient manner empowering, you know, Brian with cloud access and by us kind of, you know, tying our horse, you know, to the AWS cart, we've essentially made sure that the speed with which we can get our data is incredibly fast. And then, of course, the downstream benefits for all of our partners are the same. Yeah, Maxer support with tasking their imagery has been uh, incredibly helpful for this process. In addition to problems with cloud cover, this the scale of the Amazon really makes it difficult to monitor everything. And Max has been really supportive in providing extra eyes in the skies to help complement our boots on the ground and the reports that we're hearing from local communities. Yes, and what have been some of your findings and results so far? Yeah, so access to near real-time satellite imagery, as well as the vast database of historical imagery, all available via the cloud, has allowed us to identify many more isolated settlements that were previously known and identified on overflights. And this information was vital to identify the estimated territorial extent of isolated groups so that protection strategies could be adjusted accordingly. So this included the creation of intangible zones where both local indigenous communities and national park staff have agreed to leave huge swaths of territory for the exclusive use of isolated peoples. And again, this is always in close collaboration and consent with neighboring indigenous groups. How has access to the satellite imagery and data allowed the communities to better respond to COVID-19? 
Unfortunately, Indigenous communities have been among the most vulnerable to COVID-19, with mortality rates estimated over twice that of the wider population. This is in part due to marginal access to health care and limited hygiene resources, but also a big part of it is due to local government's weak ability to prevent invasions into Indigenous lands, helping spread the virus into those communities. One of the biggest negative consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic is just this huge surge in illegal activity across the Amazon with increased illegal gold mining, logging, and drug smuggling activities all visible in satellite imagery, again matching reports from the field. And these illicit extractive industries are leading to direct conflicts between indigenous peoples, including isolated groups and illegal mafia groups. Most of this is occurring in remote transboundary regions along the border between Colombia, Peru, and Brazil. And there's little capacity from local governments to locate and evict these mining barges using traditional strategies like patrols and overflights. However, by connecting local authorities with high-resolution satellite imagery from Maxar Secure Watch, they've been able to effectively monitor illegal mining activity in near real time, reviewing imagery mere days after it's taken. And this rapid access to imagery has led to concrete enforcement action, including the eviction and destruction of illegal mining barges from the territories of isolated indigenous groups. How do you see this project evolving in the future? The presence of isolated indigenous groups isn't limited to just to Colombia. There's estimated to be roughly 160 groups in all of South America, many of which are in urgent need of protection. And so we're hoping to replicate this methodology at a larger scale to help protect these vulnerable peoples. To do this, ACT has been partnering with a local indigenous association in northern Peru to support their research into isolated groups and to facilitate access to satellite imagery using Maxar's SecureWatch platform. And within this collaboration, we've been able to confirm nine additional isolated indigenous groups in northern Peru in just the past few years. And this evidence will be essential for the creation of pending indigenous reserves that will help consolidate a vast planned conservation corridor spanning across Colombia, Peru and Brazil. One of the great things that, you know, that we're excited about, of course, is not only just providing this satellite imagery access, which is truly helpful from everything that Brian has stated, but it's also providing additional analytics, you know, because we don't just offer satellite imagery. We also have the ability to categorize what sort of change we've seen in an area, you know, analyze vegetative health, those sort of things. So I'm very excited about kind of the next few months and years where we're really going to be starting to lean more on the analytical side of things to assist ACT so that they're getting, you know, what we in the in the industry call derived data products that are maybe a little bit more kind of complete mapping initiatives than just simply a satellite image. And that data can then be used directly to influence, you know, whatever sort of protections are going to be proposed in a given area, or again, just allow it to be kind of a baseline understanding of where things lie at a certain given time. From satellites to contact centers, the cloud can play a critical role in providing solutions that help keep people safe. When you need to contact your state or local government, there's likely a large contact center fielding and routing the calls behind the scenes. Many of these still run on analog systems, which require agents to be physically present in the call center in order to actually answer the phones. To allow employees to work from home to observe physical distancing requirements without interrupting the services available for citizens, many state and local government departments turn to cloud-powered solutions like Amazon Connect. Los Angeles County Department of Children and Family Services was in the midst of modernizing its call center from analog to a digital cloud-based system with Amazon Connect when the pandemic began. 
Ray chatted with Bobby Cagle, the director of the LA County DCFS, the largest child welfare agency in the United States, to learn more about the Department Hotline's digital transformation. I began work in child welfare a little over 32 years ago in a very small county in the mountains of North Carolina. I came to the work because I was myself born into the foster care system in North Carolina and spent the first nine months of my life in an orphanage in eastern North Carolina before being adopted by family in a town called Robbinsville. I do the work because of that. been here in Los Angeles County for about three years now. What services does DCFS provide for the community? This is a community of 10.2 million people, a very large geographic area that we serve. We serve about 36,000 children each year, including about 18,000 in out-of-home care or foster care at this point in time. We have a budget of about $2.7 billion and a workforce of nearly 9,000 social workers and support staff. The priority, of course, for our agency is to assure the safety of children, but also to assure that families have what they need to be well. How do you ensure the well-being of the children? The process begins with us taking calls from the public where they may express concerns about families or about children and their well-being. And then depending on the allegations that are brought, uh, we may connect those families to prevention services or other resources in the community, or we may open an investigation. We work with families in what we call family maintenance in order to be able to provide services to the family. If beyond that, we are not able to assure the safety of children, we bring them into foster care and work with the family while the child is out of the home. If in the event we're not able to reunify the child with the family, then we also provide uh, permanency services like adoptions. So we're a full service public child welfare agency Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about the Child Protection Hotline. How many calls do you typically have on any given day? And how many agents are working the lines? In normal times, about 1,000 to 1,100 calls per day. That's a little less on weekends. We typically receive about five to 600 calls a day during the pandemic. And then again, uh, 200 to 250 on Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, For the calendar year 2019, we received 225,000 calls at that hotline. We have 161 agents with a complement of supervisors as well that take those calls, who again work shift schedules around the 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week responsibility. Pre-pandemic, of course. Would they all be in the same office taking those calls real-time around the clock? Yes, not all at the same time, of course, but working in shifts, they would have all been in the office. And that office is a very, very busy place. Once the pandemic began, how did the needs of not only the public, but also the workforce change? So at the beginning of the pandemic, they were not able to work from home. We were actually using an old analog call-in system and had very little functionality with that system and no functionality with regard to working remotely. So we had all those people still in our offices. Luckily, we had been working on implementation of Amazon Connect. And during the pandemic, uh, we were able to actually stand that up 
and have been able to outstation our staff. They all work from home at this point, including managers and supervisors. And that has really helped us in protecting our staff and assuring that they were not exposed unnecessarily to COVID. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the limitations that you are up against with that analog system? Did you have a lot of insight into call volume or any other analysis that you could perform on the calls that were coming in? Actually, the call volume was a manual process. So we were continually pulling data from our child welfare information system, which was not linked to the analog system. Many of the things that we did were all manual processes. We didn't have good capabilities to be able to have supervisors listen into calls when they're needed. Had a lot of difficulty in managing the workflow because of the limitations of that analog system. Was it also costly to upkeep that? It was very costly. We actually achieved a cost savings by going to Amazon Connect. And a lot of that was around the really outdated equipment. When I came to this role, one of the first questions I asked was, what kind of equipment are we using at our hotline? In Southern California, this is extremely important because we are prone to natural disasters such as earthquakes and wildfires. So when I first learned that we were on this old analog system, my first image in my mind was, oh no, we're going to have a earthquake, we're not going to be able to work remotely, and we're going to be without a hotline. It's just not acceptable. In the end, we determined that Amazon Connect best fit the needs of the organization, and we set about doing the procurement that was required. We've been able to actually use the technology, use our laptops, and send people home to do not just the same work, but I think better work because we do have additional capabilities for our supervisors to supervise remotely, to track the data that is associated with the calls that come in, and to really help us manage workflow in a way that is different from the way we were able to work under the analog system. Yeah, that flexibility and disaster preparedness is huge so that there's that continuity of service for the citizens of LA. I'm hoping you can tell me a little bit more about some of the data and insights that you're now able to track and see that previously just wasn't possible or was extremely cumbersome and manual. We previously managed all of our data using spreadsheets. And The managers at the hotline were responsible for capturing call volume. We were able to keep a lot more granular data than we previously were, and it is not a manual process of collecting that data, which has made it much more helpful to me as a director. I now get a daily report from our hotline staff that gives me all of the detailed data that I need to be able to monitor the call volume to see if we need to add staff, but also to monitor for call volume in a situation like this pandemic where we've had a decline in calls. That decline in calls also caused me great concern. And what we ended up determining through the tracking of the data that we're discussing is that we were lacking calls coming from the education community because schools were not in session. But we were able to determine that very early on 
And we set about at that point to work with our school systems to educate them on how you recognize difficulties that children may be having via virtual means, and also to re-educate them on exactly what they should be looking for in any typical time. So the data capabilities have been truly essential to us during the pandemic and will continue to service extremely well, I'm, I'm sure, as we exit the pandemic, to be able to really track, monitor, and adapt as a system uh, in order to be able to handle the very varied needs that we encounter here in Los Angeles. Ultimately, how is this improving the citizen experience when they're calling in? Were they having any difficulties before getting through on an analog system? And has the switch to Amazon Connect improved their experience in any way? I would say absolutely. When I first arrived in LA County, I received probably one call a week with concerns from the public about the whole times, digging into what that was about. Part of that was the analog system. Part of that was that we needed to staff differently at different times of day. But again, having to track data manually caused it to take longer for us to be able to identify that. At this point, I think the greatest benefit that we've had with the public is it takes as little as 30 seconds to connect and usually no more than one minute. And this is, you know, I think essential. You never want to lose a call in child welfare, have people hang up because they may have vital information on the other end about the protection of a child, and that really starts our system. So if we're hampered at the beginning of the process, then we are not able to be as effective throughout the rest of the process. And so this has been an extremely important change for us. What else is in store for the department? Well, a couple of things. First of all, we are looking forward to integrating the artificial intelligence capabilities of Amazon Connect into our workflow. We think it will really enhance our ability to improve child safety, to ask the right questions of the callers that are coming in. We also periodically need things like transcripts of calls. What we would have to do historically with transcripts would be to pull the call and have somebody manually transcribe those. The artificial intelligence capabilities would allow us to do that automatically. Call sentiment, where you have the ability of the system to sense the intensity of the voice tone and the call analytics are all things that we think are going to definitely improve our efficiency, but also allow us to ask more incisive questions. To hear more inspiring customer stories, we hope you'll join us at the AWS Public Sector Summit online on April 15th and 16th at no cost. To learn more about the upcoming summit, here's Teresa Carlson, Vice President, AWS Worldwide Public Sector and Industries. If you've enjoyed today's conversations and you want to learn more about the work AWS does with public sector around the world, register for the upcoming AWS Public Sector Summit online happening on June the 30th, 2020. This is a fully virtual, no-cost online summit and registration is now open. We're building an experience that you'll be able to access right from your own virtual office. We hope you'll join us for a day of these virtual sessions, moderated chats, and interactive experiences to help you come away with what you need. Register at aws.amazon.com slash fix dash this dash podcast. As always, a big thank you to our guests, Jeff, Brian, Matt, and Bobby. 
And thank you for tuning in. If you like today's show, please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share. We'll be here on the next one. 